As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we're still here in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 6, so you can turn to Genesis 6. And before we read and hear, let's, let's pray. Our, our great God, you've told us in your word, and we believe that it is true, that you desire all people be saved and come to the knowledge of, of truth. And we want that to be especially true of us today. Help us to listen well by your Spirit. Open our minds and hearts to see and to believe that we would know you and be saved. Help us to honor you in all of this. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 6. We have just uh, the last several verses of this chapter, but we'll begin in verse 17. So Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of everything, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of God. Now, here's where we're headed. After today, we'll be hitting the pause button on Genesis just for a little bit until the new year. That's because next week is the beginning of the season of Advent when we're anticipating the birth of Jesus. And so, of course, we could continue on in Jesus, but I suppose this year I've decided we're, we're going to just travel to other parts of the Bible for that, and I'll leave you in suspense about what parts we'll be in. But here we're in Genesis, at least for today. We're, we're interrupting the flood narrative starting in later weeks, uh, just as we've got going. It, it lasts from chapter 6 to 9, and we've just started. And where we're leaving off, off here kind of leaves us on the edge of a, a, of a cliff. Noah has just built the ark all this commanding of the things he's to do with it. And in the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 7, that's when the Lord commands Noah to go into the ark just before the waters are to begin. 
We know, of course, that the ark is a really important part of the narrative. If you were here last week, or if you weren't, here's a reminder. We looked at at how God had called Noah to make himself an ark. Noah, make for yourself an ark. That is, God doesn't magically pull an ark out of a hat or just make it appear in a puff of smoke. God calls Noah to build this ark from scratch. And the ark is the way that God has determined to save Noah and others from being destroyed with the rest of all flesh. Noah is to be saved through this ark. And he's saved not because he obeyed God, but he's also saved not without obeying God either. That is, he must obey. The ark must be built. So Noah has a living faith that that produces living works in obedience to build the ark. So the ark is the mechanism by which God will save Noah and others. And as critical as the ark is for his salvation, there is another aspect of this narrative that is even more important than the ark is. This will be our focus for today. The, The piece we'll look at here is the focus on covenant. Covenant. God's going to address his covenant more extensively after the flood in chapter 9. That's where he gives the very famous sign of the covenant, which is the bow in the sky. We'll look at those things when we get to them. But here we get our very first taste of the covenant. The verse we'll focus on is verse 18. Let me read it again. The Lord says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This aspect of covenant is critical for us to understand. Covenant is one of the main ways in which we understand how the whole Bible fits together as a single coherent story from beginning to end. Some people call covenant a a framework of the Bible. You know how sort of like a painting has a, has a frame on it? And that's a fine way to think about covenants as a framework, but I don't think it's the best way to think about covenants because, well, frames aren't actually part of the paintings, are they? They just define the, the edges, the outsides of things, and I suppose that's fine. But covenant is not just about the edges of things. It's an important part of the Bible story itself. A better way to think about covenant is not just as a framework, but as the fabric of the Bible. Covenant is the very cloth that the Word of God is made of. So we need to look at this fabric. What exactly is covenant? It's tough We'll try, but it's tough to define all of what covenant entails in the Bible. In fact, there's, there's a book that's commonly referred to in regard to covenant. Excellent book. I won't even mention the title, which is fine. But this book starts off this way when it's talking about covenants. In the first page, it says, asking, asking for a definition of covenant is, is like asking for a definition of mother. 
could try to define mother. You could say a mother is a person who brought you into the world. But we know it's much more than that, right? Sometimes it even looks slightly different than that. In a similar way, a full definition of covenant isn't quite possible. There's just always going to be a lot of facets that we'll miss. But we know at least a covenant is not less than this. A covenant is a uniquely arranged and bonded relationship between two or more parties. A covenant is a uniquely arranged and bonded relationship between two or more parties. So the type of arrangement is going to vary depending on the type of covenant, right? If you have a covenant marriage, that's a particular type of arrangement between a husband and a wife. If you have a covenant of a business arrangement, uh, we have a different sort of covenant going on there. If you have a covenant of the homeowners association, if you're under one of those, that's a totally different one that everyone uh, loves to complain about. There's tons of different types of, of human covenants uh, now for us uh, currently and also in the scripture. But the covenant fabric of the Bible doesn't mainly focus on covenants between man and man, although that's part of it. The focus is on the covenant between God and man. And that stretches across the whole Bible. We see God specifically entering into covenant, into a uniquely arranged and bonded relationship with various people throughout the ages. He's with Adam, with Noah, as we see here, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. Even, even the prophet Jeremiah later talks about this, this new covenant, this capstone covenant that's to be fulfilled in Jesus. And, and you recognize that covenant even if you don't know about it because we raise a glass to this covenant every time we take communion together. That's when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So a large part of what we're communing in is in God's covenant there. All of these various covenants throughout the scripture with God and man, one after another, they're not replacing each other as if, you know, we got to throw one out and get a new one in, but they're expanding and building on one another. Covenants then are the way that we see and know the way that God is faithful to his people throughout the ages of history. And even though the covenant fabric stretches across the whole Bible, we want to focus on this one text here. We can't do the whole Bible all at once. This is actually where we hear the first mention of the word covenant, even though the theme is everywhere. In verse 18 is the first time we hear this word covenant. Now, we want to take a good look here in the rest of our time at three persons or groups of persons who are connected to this particular covenant. So let's look at the first of those persons. The first is the covenant establisher. The covenant establisher here is God. Let me read it again, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. He doesn't say our covenant. 
even though in some sense that's true, it is their covenant, he says, this is my covenant that I establish with you. God is not in some sort of joint negotiation of covenant, like a, some sort of terms of a contract. So the occasion here is not like this. It's not as if the Lord says, Noah, I have seen the corruption on the earth, and I'm going to bring a flood to destroy all flesh. And Noah says, or what if you let me build a boat for me and my family? Hmm? What do you think, Lord? And the Lord says, if you throw in two of every animal, you got yourself a deal. And Noah says, all right, but no dinosaurs. Okay, done, you know, and we're good. That would be almost a silly thing to imagine, Noah and the Lord back and forth going like this. The covenant of God is not about counter offer and counter-offer until they can reach some sort of agreement that works for everybody. It is God who sees, who speaks, who commands, and who establishes his covenant. In fact, fun fact here, if we read the whole flood narrative, we don't hear Noah speak a single word in the entire narrative. During the whole flood event, Noah says not a word in the text, not until long after he exits the ark and is back on land at the end of chapter 9 do we even hear him say anything. God sets all of his own terms of this covenant, and he speaks about his covenant as something he establishes. It's not just something he confirms with a signature. He's got a little paper and signs his name. God at the bottom. It's that God establishes. He stands up. He raises his covenant. And that's the direct opposite of everything else that he's about to do in the coming narrative. Everything else is about to, to fall. As the rain falls, so does everything else. The earth is about to be brought down, but God's covenant is lifted up. So what saves Noah from the floodwaters isn't just the floating ark, although that's the mechanism that God uses. What really saves Noah from the flood is that this ark is constructed out of covenant, that it, this covenant is this pillar, this tower through the storm that is to come, and it's a covenant that God alone establishes. So he's the first person that we look at. The establisher is God. Let's look at the second person or group. The second person or group are the covenant beneficiaries. Thought I was going to have trouble saying that word. Had to practice. Beneficiary. Close enough. You know what I mean. Those who benefit from it, which are here, everyone who's brought on to the ark. So in terms of the covenant, God really has nothing to gain out of his covenant, doesn't he? Nothing that he doesn't already have. But the beneficiaries have a lot to gain from it, a lot to benefit from. 
that they're not to be blotted out with the rest of all flesh, that they, they get to continue to live and flourish. The specific beneficiaries of this covenant are listed at the end of verse 18. We, we hear, you, your son, uh, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and then in, in verse 19, uh, of every living flesh, there, there's a pair of every kind of animal that's brought on. And that's, that's a lot of beneficiaries, a lot of creatures all on one boat. But we should notice and have to note that all those creatures on the boat, as many as they are, that is nothing in comparison to all the number of creatures on the earth. The ark is about to carry a small subset of all those in whom is the breath of life, which means that God's covenant here is exclusive. It's an exclusive covenant. There are many who are excluded from or outside of the benefits of God's covenant. And that's a hard reality to face. That can be hard uh, for people within the church to wrestle with, of course. It's especially hard uh, for the culture to wrestle with because exclusivity for culture is often the cardinal sin. You know, inclusivity is a good thing in a lot of ways, right? We want to teach our kids and, and remind each other of this, not to be too clicky. You know, we don't want to fixate on being just the gatekeepers of our own tiny little group, deciding who's in and who's out and so that we can hold on to our own stuff. You know, we want our kids and each other to notice when people are feeling left out, to look for ways to bring people in. That's a good and important thing. Inclusivity is often a good thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. God's covenant here is exclusively applied to the ones he's chosen to bring onto the ark. Now, there are some people who will say, Mm. I don't know if I can believe that God would be like that. I don't know that I can believe that God would be exclusive. That seems so unfair. And there's some truth to that, of course. This isn't fair. You know, famously, not a lot of life is fair. The very existence of the ark is unfair. No one on earth, not Noah, not his family, not the animals, no one is entitled to this ark. And yet the Lord still gives it to them, still commands it that it can be built up before the flood. If God were fair, he would have just wiped out the whole world and everyone would be blotted out. There are still some people that, that want to fix this aspect about God to make God be how we think he ought to be. And so some people even go so far as to cut out, tear apart the very covenant fabric of the Bible, to change God to be more inclusive. There are different ways that plays out. Some people even go so far as to expand it to the level of faith. All faiths, all beliefs, all views, they're all good. 
say some. Now that might sound good to some people. It might sound very inclusive, very inviting, very welcoming, but true inclusivity like this never works. It never works. Because the moment one Christian says, wait, Jesus says he's the only way, the truth, and the life, and that there's none other but through him then the inclusivist would have to say, no, that's an exclusive way, so you're out of our covenant group. You and, I guess, Jesus along with him, if that's what he believes. The Christian then is exclusive from the, excluded from this group, along with anyone else who disagrees with the tenets of the inclusive clubs. All, all Muslims, all Mormons, all Jews, most of the world would be thrust out of this inclusivist club. Inclusivity never works. God's covenant is not inclusive. It is exclusive. But let me be clear along with this. The fact that his covenant is exclusive does not mean that the beneficiaries of the covenant, those who are included, does not mean that those people can be prideful or smug about their position. I'm in the covenant, and you're not, which means I'm better than you. No one would say that out loud, but some people feel it. You hear it in the way sometimes Christians treat other people. The exclusivity of the covenant is made to produce just the opposite sense in us, that we would be humbled grateful, flabbergasted even, that I would be part of this thing, that I would be brought in to benefit from this covenant that I don't deserve. For Noah, we see the beneficiaries are him, his wife, his children and their wives and all those with them. That's the second group that we've looked at. The third and final group, the final person we'll mention is also part of the beneficiary of the covenant, but a very particular role in it. This is the most important of the three that we looked at. So if you tuned me out, tune back in. The third person that we'll look at is the covenant representative. Why do all these numbers have to have long names? The covenant representative, which here is Noah. Short one, I can say that. Covenant representative is Noah. Here's what's going on here. This is part of a theological concept that some people call federalism. Boy, doesn't that sound exciting. Okay, federalism in this context has nothing to do with government or politics. You know, we're not talking federalist party things here, nor is this part of federal vision. If you don't know what that is or have never heard that term, good, you don't need it. That's a totally different thing. Federalism just comes from the Latin word, which means covenant. And federalism specifically includes what we often call the federal head, or the term that I prefer because I think it's clearer, the covenant representative. We really need to understand this. What exactly is a covenant representative? Let's look at the text. The question for us is with whom... Does God establish his covenant? 
With whom does he establish his covenant? Look closely again in verse 18. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Seems clear enough, right? God, I will establish my covenant with you. That you is not a plural you. It's not a y'all. And you can see that in the Hebrew, but you don't need to know Hebrew to do it. If you just keep looking, he says, I'll establish my covenant with you. And you come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons with you. That is, this you refers to a single person. Technically, God established his covenant with only one individual, with you, Noah. And Noah is what we call the covenant representative. Even though the covenant of God is technically made only with just Noah, we know the covenant is not only for Noah, right? It's clearly, immediately expansive, far beyond him. The beneficiaries extend to the people all around him, to the offspring after him, all, all the living creatures that are with him in the ark and all of their offering. All, but all of these people, all these beneficiaries, they all receive God's covenant blessing through one, through Noah, the covenant representative. So Noah, if he were part of a garden hose, because that metaphor makes sense, Noah would be like the nozzle at the end of the hose. A tiny little hole that all the water needs to come through. That if I'm to water my plants with the blessing of water, all that water needs to come through that one little hole. In other words, we could say that the only the only ticket onto the ark to be saved, not that he's selling tickets, you know, nobody's banging on the door to get to join. Hey, sell me a ticket. This isn't a Taylor Swift concert. But, uh, but the only ticket onto the ark, it isn't just that the person earned a spot, the person won some sort of lottery, random drawing, that the person's the best of the best. We picked you out because we think you're, you're good enough for this. The only ticket onto the ark is just to say this. I'm with Noah. That's the ticket. And that's really the case. If I'm really with Noah, God's covenant with the covenant representative is now extended to that person as well. This is now a pattern that, that goes throughout the pages of the Bible. It's not just unique to Noah. In the covenant fabric of the Bible, we see lots of different covenant representatives. When, when God makes covenant, he makes one with Noah to the people, Moses to the people, David to the people. And for the people to be included as part of that covenant, they need to be with or in that covenant representative, that covenant head. 
That's not to over-inflate Noah or the other covenant heads as if they were some sort of super spiritual, religious superheroes that we should stand in awe over them and ooh and awe over those things. All these human covenant representatives end up making their own sort of mess if you just keep reading far enough. They're all sinners in, in need of the grace of God, just like me, you, and all the rest of mankind. But they're establishing this pattern in the covenant fabric of the Bible that all, all, all of the benefits and blessing of God's covenant will come through one. And that is meant to lead us up to the very feet of Jesus to meet the ultimate covenant representative who's going to be a better Noah. Jesus is later called the mediator of the new covenant. That is, Jesus not, isn't just part of God's covenant with man. He's the mediator, the representative, the head of the, of the covenant. And Jesus refers to this place as the, as the covenant head in a lot of different ways. You notice them if, if you're now kind of tuned into this concept. One of the ways of referring to himself as covenant head is when Jesus calls himself the door. You know that one? When he calls himself the door of the sheep. This is in John chapter 10. Let me find it. In verse 1, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, there's only one covenant door. There's no use trying to get in another way, climbing over the wall or otherwise. And then Jesus says later in, in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I am the door, Jesus says. And this is indescribably good news. Listen. You are not your own doorway to God. You are not your own doorway to God. Jesus, the door is your way to God. And that is a relief. God has not made his covenant directly with you, as if he made a thousand individual covenants with each one of us. We actually don't want that to be the case. If the covenant were just with you, you would be ultimately responsible to keep that covenant, to maintain that covenant, to uphold that covenant, and to carry that covenant forever. And I don't know about you, but, but I, well, we all are too sinful, too weak to be able to keep that. You know, if I were to give one of my kids a glass pitcher of water to take to the table. We don't give them glass anything. Right now it's plastic and melamine. But if I were to give my kids a full glass pitcher and say, take this to the table, it's only a matter of time before the floor is full of wet shards of glass. We're just not able 
to uphold it. And in a similar way, we see the pages of the scripture scraped, scarred, scattered with these wet shards of broken covenants because man cannot keep it. We see it all the way, not just from Noah's day, before and all the way into now, this series of violence and corruption and hopelessness. You see it, I'm sure, in your own hearts at times when it rears its ugly head. We cannot keep it. But this, but this new and final covenant of God he makes with a better covenant representative than Noah. That is, Jesus, the the ultimate covenant keeper, not just holds this pitcher of water, which he does and is strong enough to do. He doesn't just hold it. He pours that water out to all the beneficiaries, generously giving living water to all who would come to him by faith as as their covenant representative. We hear here in these early pages of Genesis that that, that God, God has established covenant bonds, and his people are the beneficiaries of these covenant blessings because Jesus is our everlasting covenant representative. So go through the door. Walk on into the ark. And if anyone stops and asks for your ticket, you say, I'm with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we know what you've said is true, that you have established your covenant as a strong and solid place to stand. And our our covenant representative is a shield and a savior. Lord, help us to look to Jesus always and to trust your faithfulness to sustain and uphold your covenant forever. You are a good and right God, and we trust you, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.